welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. This is the Thursday Deep Dive episode. My name is Brett Schaefer. I'm here with Ian Gray on Zoom and Ryan Henderson. As always, we're going to be talking Avalara today, a software as a service company that does tax compliance. Very boring, uh, but everyone knows we love software as a service, so we can pay infinite valuation for it. But no, uh, we, we know we can't do that. Uh, but before we get started, uh, I don't know, it's been 13 FC and we saw that uh, Berkshire Hathaway has been buying at Verizon. Oh, right. I don't know. Uh, you guys ever do you guys follow 13 apps at all or kind of just I like the screenshots on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I'll go to whale wisdom occasionally. The problem is uh, I always see the number one holding and I always think like, gosh, that's a good idea. Like maybe I'll look into it more. And that's always the one that's like run up. That's why it's like the number mm-hmm. one for them. Yeah. Ian, so do you, you pay attention to 13 apps? I don't pay attention to them too much in the moment. Every once in a while, I like to see what historic uh, what what firms have been doing historically, because I think that gives a little bit of insight into maybe how to uh, how to find some of these ideas. Like where did they, you know, why did that become their number one position or things like that? Right, right. Um, but in the moment, I don't pay too much attention to them. Yeah, we just copy Berkshire Hathaway, right? Uh, but no, the uh, <laughs> we'll let Ryan. Ryan, why don't you get started and talk about what Avalara does? Well, before uh, use our code. Oh, right, use right. our code CCM at Seven Investing because we're salesmen now. So uh, ten dollars off. First yeah. month at seven investing, so it only costs you seven bucks. Great, great amount of picks. What, what else, Ryan? They're getting their advisor soon. Yeah, and what? How many days until we're only halfway through the month? So I guess uh, a few more days until March. Uh, yeah, their their new picks, but we do look forward to their picks pretty much every time. There's always one or two you can nitpick and kind of uh, add or look at for your own portfolio but i'll get into avalara so is it hold on is it avalara or avalara Which uh, now? i heard them on a podcast advertising uh so come on ours if you want but the it's avalara avalara yeah. is a software as a service tax compliance company so merchants that still sell stuff on the internet this is kind of the customer value proposition there's merchants and they sell stuff on the internet or they sell in multiple states or something like that and they have to pay various different types of taxes so there's Sales tax, use tax, value-added tax, which I believe is like uh, sort of uh, placed on the supply chain, essentially. And then uh, excise taxes in some cases, and there's a bunch more. And the problem is every state and jurisdiction has not only different rates, but in some cases, different taxes altogether. So it's hard for them, I mean, almost impossible for the merchants to keep up with all of that. Um, and then they're supposed to pay or remit those taxes uh, at the end of the year, or they have to pass along certain uh, taxes to the consumer at the time of the purchase. And so this is where Avalara comes in. Avalara, oh, sorry. Avalara. There you go. Uh, and they have a bunch of different products that basically clean it all up for you. So you can calculate your required taxes. You can automate your returns, your reporting. You can simplify the registration process, a bunch of that kind of stuff. Um, and it's really, there is a lot of terminology if you're looking at this company that might be difficult to understand. I recommend kind of just going one by one and looking up a bunch of the different words because there were a bunch of the different taxes that I didn't quite understand. Um, but basically, that is their customer value proposition is 
this is such a hard time consuming yeah yeah for merchants uh, it's time consuming it's not what they want to be doing uh and it can be pretty intimidating for a lot of merchants so they're, mm -hmm. they're that's really where they just kind of fit in um and so there were three founders initially there was rory rawlings scott mcfarland and jared vote uh sorry if i'm pronouncing that wrong but i believe rory was the first one to actually come up with the idea in 2004 and this was based in seattle washington so close to our home uh so we might have a little home bias here, but uh, I've got a quote from the CEO, Scott McFarlane. He said, it's not just, oh, I'm going to make a calculations. Uh, sales tax is a lot harder than just rates. Uh, Rory had this idea about taking a geospatial information, combining it with rates, combining it with all the sourcing and taxability rules, and combining it into one engine that could speak to every accounting package, every e-commerce package package, do it in sub one second, store that information, then report on that information and create a return to the right jurisdiction and re then remit your money. It's complicated, long, but basically packaged, they've packaged all this into one so that it's easy for these businesses to just uh, integrate it and take care of essentially all their tax compliance. Um, and Rory actually left. Rory was sort of that uh, the, the one that came up with the initial idea. He left in 2016 to start some hemp and cannabis thing. In that's, Virginia. Where all, that's where the ideas guys are now. I <laughs> guess. Hemp, so, cannabis, uh, cryptos. It was a little strange. I looked at his LinkedIn profile. It was just weed in the background of his profile picture, but there whatever. Um, and then Jared still works at Avalara or Avalara and Rory is the CEO. So that's kind of background on the business. Am I missing anything? I don't think so. I'll get into the industry landscape competition. Uh, management talks about there's a $4 billion opportunity for mid-market companies, $2 billion for small market companies, and then $2 billion for enterprise in the United States. So sort of revenue. Uh, yeah, that's their kind of revenue opportunity for them for tax compliance. That's kind of their industry they're going after in the United States. And then they probably say that you can multiply it by more than two for their opportunity abroad. Uh, so when we look at We'll get look at the earnings numbers when Ryan talks about them, but they're they're not really coming up on any market saturation anytime soon because that's kind of something you would worry about with Avalara is it seems niche. So are they going to you know have all these customers to actually go after for the next few years? Uh, number one competitor would be according to them manual filings. Uh, so people that are still doing the legacy stuff all on the analog stuff instead of using a software service to automate it. Um, go Sorry, ahead, Ryan. I'm going to interrupt there, but it feels like that is going to become an increasingly smaller part of merchants as e-commerce um, becomes so ubiquitous. Over the next, yeah, over the next if, decade. If, they, I, mean, I mean, if you're going from into multiple jurisdictions or selling into different locations, it, it makes it so much harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's still, and that's the big market opportunity they talk about because I think it's 70% of people still use manual. So it feels like that's wow. going to entirely go to a concept like Avalara over the next decade. Um, but they have competitors. So there's Vertex, which is a software competitor, very similar to them. They just went public. They also work on tax compliance for businesses. It's definitely, they're the largest public like direct competitor. Um, but there's also Thomson Reuters, uh, who does tax accounting software. And then just for Vertex, I believe they're more enterprise focused because they brag that 50% of the Fortune 500 uses Vertex, but Avalara is kind of going after that mid-market and small market, although they are trying to go after the uh, large market as well. There's other ones. There's uh, one Ryan was mentioning to me called Tax Jar. They're a little bit smaller, but still relevant. And there's a bunch of other smaller players uh, because it's not something that's super hard to copy. 
Uh, but you know, like yeah, it's not a code that's you have super to take fun. the tax codes as inputs and essentially be able to run it at a uh, fast speed, right? So as mm -hmm. soon as they give you the locations, you cross-reference it from the, uh, maybe I'm talking over my head, but you're referencing it based on all these different tax codes from all these different areas that you hopefully have in one place uh, and it can hopefully be done quickly. Yeah, yeah there's Taxify also, Tax Cloud, I think, but those are more for like small kind of- Yeah, like maybe versions. an individual entrepreneur on Amazon Etsy uh, marketplace or, or Etsy, Shopify, something like that. But Avalar tries to go. I think they mentioned that their core market is someone above 20 employees, so that's who they're going after. So it's a little different. And then the industry overall uh, is projected to grow at a double-digit rate, double-digit rate over the next seven years. So good tailwind overall for them. Um, Ian, I'll let you talk about management and ownership. Yeah. So the CEO and co-founder, um, as Ryan mentioned, is Scott McFarlane, not to meet, uh, not to be mistaken for Seth McFarlane, as I accidentally uh, <laughs> Googled today, looking in for uh, uh, the Avalara uh, CEO and found some different stuff. So um, anyways, uh, he, this is just a little bit of a fun fact, a little bit personal, but he went to Claremont McKenna, which is a college in Southern California. It's actually where my parents met and went to school and I was very close to going there. So um, it's, it's a really good school. So anyways, that was kind of a cool little connection, but he used to be the COO and looks to have quite a bit of operating experience. He also seems like he's kind of a serial entrepreneur right out of college. He started um, Lifecycle, which was, they made exercise equipment. And I think they said it became like the largest exercise bike um, provider in the country at the time. Uh, he ran that for like six or eight years somewhere in there. So, you know, he was kind of Peloton before Peloton, I guess that was back in like the seventies or eighties. Um, so anyways, kind of some, a little bit of an interesting history, uh, as far as the ownership structure institutions own over eight, 90% classic kind of software as a service, um, you know, ownership structure there, uh, T row price Vanguard and BlackRock are the top three shareholders. So some pretty, some pretty big names there. I think their positions are all about 10%, eight to 10%. Um, insiders own just under 5% of the company. So, you know, a good stake, but nothing, nothing crazy. Yeah, they don't have crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like 20% of the company or anything like that. And then the CEO owns just under 1%. So again, a little less than I sometimes like to see, but I think that's, uh, I think he has like $130 million wrapped up in the business. So he should be aligned with shareholder interests. Okay. Yeah. That's not bad, man. Ben uh, D, but, uh, I, I did like, uh, now you've got Seth McFarland stuck in my head, but uh, <laughs> McFarland, they did an interview with, I think all three founders. It's up on the Avalara website. Um, and Scott McFarland seemed very competent, very much sort of like a business operator and almost a little salesy, uh, but he was very convincing. Uh, yeah. worth going and taking a look at. Yeah, and I was reading an interview transcript and it said something along the lines of the empl employee said that, you know, Scott McFarland was very passionate about the project, which I think is a plus, and that people respected him, but like he wasn't a, people weren't scared of him. So it seemed like they, the culture around there, at least that he kind of brings in, was strong. Uh, but that was just one anecdote. And I guess we all go to there. Ian, Not to mention their uh, headquarters are in a great building. In a great building. Yeah, it's overlooking the stadium in Seattle. So yeah. That's, oh, that's cool. That's a, that's a buy signal. That is a true buy signal. Yeah, those lease costs are that's <laughs> definitely coming right to the operating margin. But I'll hit the valuation. Uh, enterprise value, $14 billion, ticker AVLR. I'll just hit some quick numbers here. Don't want to overwhelm people, but EV to sales of 28, that's pretty high. 
EBITDA gross profit of 39 is also high. Um, EBITDA operating cash flow of 324, also very high, uh, but they're still right around operating cash flow break even. They're kind of in growth mode. So, you know, not, uh, I wouldn't say uh, like, don't buy this because the operating cash flow multiple is that high. They can probably get higher margins over time, but that EBITDA sales number is very high. Uh, no dividend, as you probably expect, and the shares outstanding are likely going to rise a bit with the software business culture where you got one, the sales reps in your team that are getting stock options for closing deals and stuff like that. And then two developers historically get a lot of stock. So, so that's part of the, you know, I don't know. That's part of the company. Like yeah. I, it's just this type of company. You're probably going to get some share dilution. Probably won't expect that. All right, Ryan, you got earnings. Yeah, I'll talk earnings. Uh, 2020 revenue was 500.6 million. So they crossed the half a billion dollar mark. Uh, and that was up 31% year over year. Uh, more than 90% of that is subscription revenue and the rest is basically big managed accounts. So there's some stuff that maybe people or cust- uh, companies try to use Avalara, but then they're like, this is just too complex. It doesn't quite fit it. Can you guys just outright manage this? Uh, I assume that's sort of what's baked into that portion of the revenue. Uh, They had 71% gross margins in 2020, which was in line with the prior year. Uh, Operating cash flow was $42.6 million for the year, about double last year's number. So it was about operating cash flow margin of 9%. They had negative 62 million in operating income uh, with 48 million in stock-based compensation. So stock-based compensation did outnumber cash flow. That's one of the big addbacks. The other one was deferred revenue. So some of these contracts are a little longer. That's why companies like this have such, uh, I'd say, hefty deferred revenue line items. Um, and then they ended the year with almost 15,000 core customers, up 23% year over year. And they bought four companies this year. Mm-hmm. And so apparently they did a big secondary raise in 2019, which put a whole bunch of cash on their balance sheet. And they used a whole, like almost a ton of it uh, to buy these four companies. And apparently it's just like an aggressive expansion plan. They're trying to take over as much of the market as they can. Some of it was international uh, adjacent type companies. Uh, and then some were- One more, was enterprise focused. Yeah. Correct. One was more designed for enterprise customers. Um, might I be blanking on some of the other ones. Some of them might've just been very similar products that they just bought for the customers. Yeah. Uh, but- yeah, that, that's pretty much it for the earnings and you want to hit balance sheet. Yep. So on the last report of balance sheet, they have cash at about $675 million, which is due in part to it's, it's up from last year due to that, to that equity raise they did. Um, no debt, really. They have $68 million in long-term leases. So depending on how you treat those, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, arguably some debt on the balance sheet that's you know still a over 600 million dollar net cash position so a very good looking balance sheet from that uh, point of view about a third of its assets is goodwill which is due to these acquisitions that ryan just mentioned again goodwill is the the premium that you pay over um, the book value for some of these companies and so uh you know should be fine like i said about a third of assets so it's a little bit high um that'll go down over time as their asset base increases and uh, you know, if, if some of the acquisitions are unsuccessful, then you could see some write downs that would lead to poor earnings, but, uh, not like they don't have a bunch of leverage on the balance sheet. So it's not like a, it's not a big red flag for me, but just something to be aware of. Um, 
One other thing I want to point out is their days sales outstanding, which basically says how long it takes from the time they make a sale to the time they get the cash. Um, it's up from 44 days to 47 days. So that's less than a 10% increase, but it means they are having to extend a bit more terms probably to close these deals. And so, uh, you know, maybe a little discount up front, don't have to pay for the first month, things of that nature. Um, which like we were talking about the stock-based compensation for these, uh, sales, sales, uh, teams at the, at Avalara, it's, you know, things like they're always trying to hit sales targets. And so that could show that demand may have been a little bit weak in the last, the most recent quarter in the most recent year, um, compared to historical numbers. Like I said, not, it's not a huge deal because it's a less than 10% increase, but if that number were cont to continue to rise, it might show that, um, demand is weakening and that competitors may be taking a little bit, um, of market share. The other thing you can pair with that is look at the SGNA margin just to say, okay, are they having to spend more on sales and marketing as well um, to make these sales? Um, and yeah. uh, you can kind of look at those two things in tandem. In this case, the margins did improve in the last year, but I, I would say that's largely attributable to the operating leverage in the model that as you know, their revenues grow significantly, uh, their fixed cost base becomes a lower and lower percentage of of revenue. So anyways, but you can look at those two numbers in tandem a little bit to get an idea if, uh, if demand is weakening, looks like it is a little bit, but not, not, not too much. Yeah. And for a B2B software business, I think a key metric to always look at is sales and marketing for sure. Yeah. I am starting to see a lot of the sales, uh, the payback periods extend and that a lot of that might be due just to, uh, companies struggling out of the pandemic. Um, the other thing I would say is the, the contracts are all year-long contracts. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the lifetime, uh, I guess everyone, it feels like companies always overestimate their lifetime value, but I can't imagine there's a whole bunch of companies that are switching in between and in and out of tax compliance softwares because it is probably a pain in the ass to uh, figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, and so once you've kind of bolted onto something, I, I'd be surprised if you're switching in between. Yeah, and I think the key metric for that is the net revenue retention rate. And I'm not sure there's one that takes into account churn. I'm not sure which one they use, but theirs has been in between 100 and 110%, which is pretty strong. Too. Yeah, it, it has been trending in the right direction as well. So that's probably the best number to look out for for customers leaving. If it stays above 100% or keeps going higher, that's a really good sign that the customers are sticking around, seeing the value in the business. Yeah, right. and you don't want to you don't want to mortgage those relationships with your customers by overpricing too much, but the longer that they're with you, the more pricing power you essentially have because the the more those employees are used to that system. So yeah. I would not be surprised if overall in aggregate, the net revenue retention rate at least tipped up a little bit over time. Yeah, welcome home, welcome home. All right, we're going to take an ad break here and then we'll be back and talk about you know competitive advantages, all the good stuff in the second half of the show. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in. Next up is going to be competitive advantages. We'll start with Ian. As always, what do you have here? Yep, so this one's a little bit of a weak competitive advantage, at least compared to the other 
um, other tax compliance software. But I'm going to take this in a little bit of a different direction and say this is a competitive advantage relative to other software investments you might make. Um, and the competitive advantage is government. There's always going to be taxes and the market really isn't going anywhere. So you're going to have to, you know, it's kind of a problem and depending on how you look at it, but tax compliance is a big industry and it's pretty much guaranteed to be there. And it may morph and shift over time, but they don't have to worry about growing their market. It's more about capturing the market. The market's going to be there. And so it kind of provides a little bit of focus for the business to really, like I said, capture the market rather than worry about sales to grow the market. Okay. Ryan, what do you got? Yeah, it was, it's hard for me to know because I always have a hard time grasping competitive advantages when I have like no experience with the product. And especially when I can't try out any of the other competitors products. Um, but the Shopify plus partnership seems like a pretty big deal. That is, and I know that's uh, part of yeah, your growth opportunities, but, uh, Apparently, you can choose one of two things as a Shopify Plus user. I was watching one of those like uh, Shopify Plus promo YouTube videos, you know, uh, the ones you always get ads for, but uh, either their in-house solution or the Avatax engine. Um, and so there's no other third parties that have that partnership. If you wanted to use TaxJar or Taxify or something like that, you'd have to go out and independently get it and integrate it, if I'm not mistaken. And so... They kind of have a leg up in that regard. Um, that was the only one I could really identify. Yeah, yeah, that seems like a competitive advantage because if they can basically be the default plugin like Twilio is or Stripe is, just kind of like, I mean, I know it's different than just being an API like that, but if they can be similar to you know one of those, um, that is a big competitive advantage where you're just plugging in if you're using these merchant services. Those integrations do seem like a big deal, but I'll talk about mine. I think I do think scale matters with some of these offerings. So if Avalara has essentially rolled up all these tax offerings for compliance for sellers of goods, um, I know that's their bread and butter, butter, but they do a lot of other things. I think it is going to be tough to compete with because, I mean, if you only have 10 developers working on something or even 30 or 40 versus Avalara with, you know, 500, I just it's just tough to, to do well. It's tough to repeat that. But I think the likelihood of someone switching is also low which is a competitive advantage. It's kind of the um, huge lock-in you have, you know, with the software as a service business. I don't think there's any data lock-in like with another business. I guess a comparison would be someone like Snowflake or MongoDB where porting all that data or even someone like AWS, I guess, at the cloud level where you're having all that data that kind of locks you in with that customer relationship. It would seem a little harder to switch because Avalara is just a one-year process Right. You know, each year it ends and then you start up again. It seems like once that happens, you kind of have a year to switch to another provider. Um, so that may be a little weaker for Avalara. I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think about that? Yeah. It, I mean, there is, the people are using it for one reason. It's not like they're, this isn't really, maybe I'm wrong, but this is not core to core or day to, this is not core to their day-to-day operations. It's not something like Autodesk where they're stuck to the software forever. It's something that they've learned and they're going to stick with it. It can uh, track stuff day-to-day, but you're not doing the, the filings are once a year, yes. Right, so it's kind of got that Intuit uh, seasonality, if you will. I, I, I don't know. if I, I looked at the year-over-year numbers, didn't really look at the quarter numbers, and I'm not sure when, if they have any seasonality, but people are really depending on it for that one tax season. Well, you still get the compliance is done 
continuously, but yeah, you file once a year. So like if you're and, in the commerce business, you're tracking everything, you know, each month or, you know, right, right in, is that correct? Yeah. And for certain businesses, you actually have to make um, quarterly. And I think there are even some businesses that make uh, monthly uh, filings because right. if their tax bill is big enough, the IRS wants to make sure that you're actually going to pay your taxes. So they don't want you just paying at the end of the year. You have to, you have to make uh, filings throughout the year. And so, um, you know, it, it, it does have some stuff, but I think, I think kind of to your question, the it's a little bit less sticky than some of the other ones because it just has that, it's, it seems like it's not, there's all these competitors out there. It seems like the type of thing that's very easy to plug into platforms. And so whether it's, you know, Shopify, and I know they have the Shopify plus partnership, which you're going to talk about a little bit more in a second, Brett, but um, it, you know, that platforms like that can really just integrate it within the platform, even something like the Instagram um what are they calling it? Instagram buy or whatever they're yeah. calling it. Like, it seems like that's, that wouldn't be too hard to integrate into that platform as well. They have all the location data that you wouldn't really need additional software on top of it. It just seems like the type of thing that's really a tuck in um, mm-hmm. type piece of software into many of the, the e-commerce platforms. Yeah. And it is vital to a business like an e-commerce business. This an Avalara or a competitor is vital to keeping your business running, but I don't know. I kind of lean back and forth. You you would think that someone like Stripe or Twilio would be beatable, right? But there's a reason why they have kind of reached that economies of scale. I think that because right, those you could argue are you know copyable, but there's a reason why they've succeeded. Maybe there's something a little underlying in Avalara why they've been able to grow for so long. Yeah, but I guess maybe. Let me- let me give you like a scenario. If you were one of these merchants and you had 15 or 20 employees and Avalaris continued to like, like one year they gave you a bill that was just way too much. Um, wouldn't you look for alternatives? It's not like you're stuck to that one platform. I mean, yeah, but that's like with any, it's not, I don't, that's not really the, that's not the point I'm making though. It's more of like, the software itself, the technology being able to copy. Yeah. It's not more of the pricing power. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think a lot of the businesses are switching away because Avalara has bad technology. I think if there was anything, it's because there'd be a cheaper alternative. That's well, true. That's true. I, I think that's probably true. And like I said, I think it's that platform integration things, because if we go to your example of um, Stripe or Twilio, those are things that are really adding functionality um, making right. okay. apps yeah. do the things they're supposed to do. Whereas like Avalara, Avalara um, it, it's really providing an, an additional service to the customer that the customer didn't know about. And so the platforms um, like the shop, and we'll talk about this in just a second, but the Shopify plus, um, you know, allowing, giving more functionality to the user, whereas something like Twilio or Stripe doesn't really in the same way, give more functionality to the user. It's more making the thing actually work, right? right? It's okay. making yeah. whatever your app is trying to do work. Whereas like this can be a value add for some of these platforms to come in and say, you know, I can, I can start including this tax compliance thing. And then it either becomes a more of a competitive advantage for me because more people want to go with, you know, Shopify plus rather than Instagram buy because it has tax compliance built in or, or you can even charge, you know, these companies, these platforms could charge something for tax compliance. So, you know, it, it's similar. I'd say it's a little bit different than those, those things though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The price, yeah. The pricing power might be a bit yeah, concern for Avalara. Um, future growth yeah. opportunities. Uh, what do you got Ian? 
Yep. So we touched on this earlier. It's my future growth opportunity is international expansion. Um, they have a large presence in Brazil, it looks like. Um, just made a, an acquisition um, of a German company called Imposia. Okay. Uh, it looks like that's kind of the way they're growing internationally is doing, buying these smaller companies that, um, you know, it's kind of their R&D budget, really, just buying up these smaller companies using acquisitions um, and kind of expanding the market. Presumably, they have all the tax codes built in there already, and so then they can get going real fast. Um, I think they'll continue to probably do that over the next few years. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you think that's the easier way to go is to just acquire the the foreign companies? Because I it can't be as easy as just like seeing the tax codes, uploading it to a database. Like I'm sure there has to be some, there's some benefit to being native to uh, a country, right? Uh, for yeah, and I think there's also the the trust factor. I think these companies, like if you just see some random American company come in and say, yeah, we can do your taxes for you in your country. Like there's probably, I, I don't know because I don't run a business in another country, but I would imagine that if you're there, you're thinking, you know, what do these people know about my taxes? You're, it's something that people are fairly um, connected yeah, to. True. Like they, they don't want it to get messed up. No one wants to go to prison because of taxes. And so yeah. knowing that there's a company in your home, home country that does it um, probably provides you a little more assurance rather than just the big multinational. And so um, if they've already built these relationships, there um, with these companies that they've acquired, then I think that may may help with some some trust issues uh, and uh, I, potentially. And ideally, it's probably just a tiny one, like a $10 million acquisition or something, you know, give them the foothold and then you use the Avalara business model to expand. Yeah, exactly. uh, but international seems like, I mean, that's kind of what they talk about on investor presentations is where they think their next decade of growth is mainly going to come from. Uh, but Ryan, what do you have? Yeah, so I read an interview with, uh, it was transcript. Uh, of the, one of the old directors of sales. And so he said the big thing, their mid-market customers are not uh, businesses that are on like QuickBooks. Uh, it's not businesses that are really doing it in-house. It's people that are on ERPs like NetSuite or Microsoft. What's an ERP? Uh, an enter it's Enterprise Resource Planning Solution. So I believe that's basically the platform that manages day-to-day -day stuff. Unless I'm getting that wrong, and that kind of managing like do managing like does. yeah, like managing GNA, like general administrative yeah, kind of all the that office, stuff. managing the office, uh, HR, yeah, accounting like, solutions, accounting, yeah. um, like payroll, all that type of stuff, kind of okay. uh, fall under those. And so he said, if there was a way to partner with either Microsoft or Oracle or something like that, where they could give like a referral from their ERP to just be like, oh yeah, just use Avatax or something like that. He said it would just make it much, much easier for customer acquisition because uh, they, their businesses wouldn't shop around. They would just probably go with whatever the recommended one was. And even if they have to give some sort of generous kickback uh, to Microsoft or Oracle, um, I don't know. It seems like uh, it'd be worth it if you think the lifetime value of your customers is high enough. Uh, yeah, so and that's been a big – that's been a big um, – method of growth for one of the other companies we looked at a couple couple months back, Blackline. They're, um, they partnered with SAP and became one of their preferred solutions, which SAP is another ERP. And so a lot too many acronyms, but, um, yeah. but that's been a big thing for them where they get a lot of their sales now come from um, SAP who gets a kickback, but now all of SAP's sales staff is selling Blackline as well. So it kind of, you know, you lose a little margin, but you gain some volume. So 
um, that's, an, that's definitely an interesting growth avenue. Yeah. And I thought I saw that Avalara, I was going to say that's good news for you, Ryan, because I thought I saw Avalara announced a recent partnership with NetSuite, but it looks like they just kind of talk about them a lot. They don't have like a direct integration yet where it's like, all right, you sell NetSuite, add this on real quick. Like, I mean, maybe there's thing. maybe like Vertex or other, maybe other tax filing entities have tried that as well. So maybe it's more competitive than we think and Oracle and Microsoft are kind of like, hey, we're not going to sit yeah. here and give someone a special deal. Yeah. Uh, so maybe they're less inclined to do it than we think. But Yeah, I don't know. I thought I saw something on partnership with NetSuite, but I'll just get, I'll get into mine. But it, that is right. That, that, that would help them a ton. Um, yeah, we talked about this before. The integration with Shopify Plus, I think, is huge. Um, we all know the growth of Shopify, the merchants on that platform. And then if you're a Shopify Plus subscriber, I mean, Avatex just seems like, I mean, it's an automatic add-on. If it, if it works, like you, it automatically calculates your seller taxes for you. Writing that growth of Shopify could be very beneficial to Avalara. Um, I just think that's a huge tailwind. Their partnership with Big Commerce too, which is like the second tier uh, for Shopify. But yeah, it's very simple, but I think that's a great partnership to have. Do you think it's out of the question to have either an ERP provider or an e-commerce company like Shopify acquire them? I think Shopify should probably, I think it would be very smart. I mean, that would just like, because if you're a Shopify, I mean, if you're Shopify, your goal is to reduce friction as much as you can for your sellers. This this is like the biggest, like this reduces it as much as anything else, maybe other than logistics. Oh yeah. I think Shopify should acquire Havalera. Like, yeah, definitely. What do you think? It might be too big. Yeah. Well, I think that the the fact that they're already integrated on the platform and there's no other system that is, shows gives a little bit of hint of a hint that maybe they're thinking about it um and that they're kind of kicking it around and seeing how much value it's really adding because otherwise it would seem to be um you know it would be taking away a little bit from their own platform if they could charge for the service and so um you know it's it's a i think they see it as a value add and if it if if this goes well and people really enjoy using the avalara tax solution on on shopify i think i think it's a potential acquisition for sure Okay, highlights and lowlights. Ian, kick things off. Yep. So for my highlights, um, you know, it's a necessary product. You have to use for most, for the majority of you know, mid-sized businesses at least, you're going to want to use some version of this, whether it's Avalara or one of their competitors. So that provides um, a stable market. They've had strong revenue growth, improving margins for the most part, um, a good balance sheet. Um, so, you know, just, a, it's a solid business, um, on the low lights, their recent net revenue retention for this last past year, was actually at 104%, which we mentioned earlier, how it has been fairly steady for most years. And that has been true. It's been, you know, 110, 111, 113, kind of in that neighborhood, it dropped this year to 104. So, um, you know, that could it, be one time. Yeah, well, COVID, that's, the, that's the question. Is it one time because of COVID? You know, they've had a little bit of pressure on the business. Management says they've been kind of talking about it for the last couple of quarters, kind of letting people know this is going to come in a little weaker. They probably weren't. I don't know. I, I didn't look into this exactly, but I assume they weren't making big price increases or like putting extra pressure on um, companies that, you know, that were already their customers. They didn't want to raise prices on these companies that were potentially struggling. So um, still impressive revenue numbers. Uh, but definitely want to keep an eye on that net revenue retention number to make sure it gets back up to that, you know, 110, 111 level. Could the, uh, could it be that the acquisitions may have brought that number down 
like the acquisitions in aggregate might have had a net revenue retention rate that was much lower than Avatax or something like that. Potentially. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Because uh, that TTR, I forget the name of the company, acquisition was quite large, $300 million. Uh, so, yeah. But yeah, that's definitely, uh, I didn't know it had dropped like that. Yeah, it um, did tick down. But Ryan, what are your highlights and lowlights? Uh, same as Ian's, the customer value proposition is very apparent. Uh, they thrive on fear, uncertainty, and doubt, that FUD. <laughs> Uh, people, if you don't know what you have to pay, it's daunting uh, and very discouraging. And most, I mean, most merchants are not tax experts, so uh, they can probably charge a lot for that. Um, and the CEO, the CEO is also uh, solid, I thought. The low light for me is sort of the Intuit situation. And so we talked about this. It feels somewhat predatory. Uh, and maybe it's less predatory because it's in across multiple jurisdictions. But don't you think taxes as a whole should be more intuitive? Like, uh, well, that's why Intuit calls themselves that. But uh, the like, should the government make it more intuitive? Yeah. So like you're paying to pay. I hate that. I agree. I agree. Uh, but businesses are a little different than individuals because yeah. each are unique. Uh, guess, but they're yeah, not all not that unique. Income taxes, but. Yeah, individuals, I definitely agree with that. But I don't know. I mean, that is a concern relying on the government. You know. All right. What about you? Uh, I mean, great economics, like I said. I think lifetime value of a large customer is there. Uh, we were seeing with those retention rates that it's strong. Um, and I think the the one thing that kind of got me interested, at least the most interested, is that I do believe there's a high predictability. You know, with the sales growth, I, it yeah. seems like you can forecast. I mean, I hate to forecast over like a five-year period, but, you know, I mean, it seems highly predictable, 15 to 20% sales growth the next five years. They got a lot of tailwinds going for them. Um, minimal realistic competition. Now, we did talk about a lot of the competitors. Vertex seems pretty good. Um, you know, there's Taxstar, a bunch of other smaller ones, but it feels like it's coming down to a two-horse race. Um, could be wrong on that. I'm not exactly sure on that, but I, I don't know. Also, CEO is great. Like uh, like Ryan said, lowlights though you are relying on the tax code and the complication of the tax code. I think we can expect the tax code to stay complicated, but you're relying on someone else's decision for Avalara's success. You know that seems yeah. I don't know that's hard to take into account. Also, they have 70% plus gross margins, and that looks great. But it, it feels like a business that's going to be spending a good amount of their sales on sales and marketing. Um, I don't think that's going to drop below. Oh, I mean, it feels like it has to stay high because you have to have the maintenance, customer support, all, all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Well, let's wrap things up, though. More or less interested. Uh, what do you guys think? I, I'm thinking a little bit less interested. I've I've seen this one tossed around a few times and have taken some just a little look at it. Had not ever really uh, dove deep on it, but it... <laughs> I hate to say it, but it seems like just another SaaS company kind of, um, and that there's more, there's, there's companies that have, um, a little stronger value propositions in my mind and a little bit better competitive positioning against, um, either the incumbents or the people who are rising up. So yeah. it, it just doesn't quite, it, it doesn't quite get me there. But. Okay. Ryan. Yeah. Honestly, I kind of throw this in the too hard pile. Um, uh, I know we just went through a whole deep dive on it, but I don't understand the nature of tax software um, and if something were to change i'd be much slower to being able to identify what it means um 
So it might be out of my circle of competence. Also, I hate to be a perma bear, but 28 times sales is not cheap. Um, no, it's not. And that makes it that much easier to discard for me. Yeah, I think for me, I'm less interested mainly because of the valuation. Um, I mean, at 10 times sales, you maybe just think it's interesting, but that's a huge haircut from here. Uh, I do like the business a lot. But I, I, I really liked management. Yeah, management seems good, uh, but it's just the valuation that's uh, it's just getting in the way. I don't know. Like, if I had, yeah, if I understood enough and I could assume a higher growth rate because I knew the business really, really well and it was like this thing's going to grow in, uh, for 30% in perpetuity, then, well, yeah, I'd have no problem buying that. But, yeah, but they're not. I can't I mean, assume that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> at 28 times sales, it feels like, and 30% is different than like 15%, which, or 10%, that's a huge difference. Uh, it, it feels like they have, you know, conservatively, they could probably go 10 to 15% for the next five years, right? At least sales-wise. But at 28 times sales, isn't that all priced in? I don't know, <laughs> right? I yeah. feel like it is. Or at least uh, you just have to have, you have to be confident, like super confident that 15% will be there for the next 10 years. I mean, even, even if so, what are they going to, it'd be like compressing the sales ratio to in between 10 and 15. I mean, yeah, their margin structure on here, but yeah, uh, I don't know. All right. I Ian, guess it, what's, what's the stock for next week? What's the next deep dive? I'm thinking we just had some recent news this week, some earnings come out. So I'm thinking maybe Palantir next week. Okay. Okay. That's a hot right. name. It's hot name. We got to, we got to keep with the times, you know? Yeah. And they've got Go from, that. Uh, and we're, we're kind of government heavy right now too, going from Avalara to Palantir, you know, should be, you know, it'll be interesting. Plus the Bond villain CEO, right? They do have the villain. They have the <laughs> Alex Park. All right. We all good. Anything yeah. else to close out? No, that's it. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. As always, remember that Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Clients of Arch Capital may have interests or hold securities in the uh, stocks talked on this podcast. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.